Good morning, family. As I, as I talk to people, just kind of out and about, we, we did a conference this week, traveled some, talked to different uh, Lyft drivers and, and people on an airplane. But as I talk, what I, what I found is that I get really sad when I talk to people's worldviews and really find out what they believe. Because what I like to do is I like to figure out what people really believe, not what people generally believe, you know, based upon a generation or a category of like, oh, all this group believes this, thinks this. I like to ask questions and hear what's happening. But what gets sad to me, uh, a few things, but maybe the saddest is when we get into a conversation, the person has a, a, a secular mindset and worldview, and, and really it's sad because it gets to the point where they have what no other worldview has done up to this point. They have no real reason or answer for death. No, no explanation or how to recover or what to do with it. And it's really sad because if that's the case, then there's nothing. Like, you're living, you will die, dot, dot, well, not dot, 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 right? Because ellipses uh, has the idea that something's coming. There's going to be another, no, this period, done. You're dead, there's nothing else. And that's sad because <laughs> the reality is we have hope. Yeah. We have hope in the midst of even our brokenness, even our, our, our confusion, even being disoriented. Because this isn't a, a hopeless, despairing world. This, this is a hope-filled world. You know why? Because it's a fathered world. And so I want us to, to think about the hope that we have in Christ this morning, as we look at Ephesians again, but, but really to be confronted afresh again with what Christ has done for us. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to grab it. I want you to look at it with me. If you need one, grab one from the chairs around you. But look at Ephesians 1. We're looking at verses 11 through 14. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In Christ, in Jesus, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. It's a mouthful, right? But if you remember, this is a part of the, of, of the longest run-on run sentence in the Bible, 202 words from verse 3 to 14, and, and this is right in the middle of it. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. So if you're here and if you put your hope in Christ, you are here to praise God's glory, to celebrate his goodness. That's why you are here. We've seen this in verse 3, right? Blessed is, the, is God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's a call, an Old Testament call to, to praise God. It's saying literally praise God. Why? Paul answers, for he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. As I've, I've told you, a lot of our life is to rework and rethink who the Father is because we have an image in our mind of who the Father is based upon the presence or the absence of our dad. And we've got to see here is that the Father is not stingy. He is not withholding. He has given you every spiritual blessing. It's what he's done for you. So we are to praise God for what he has done for us. The silence is not an option. 
an option. Words burst from your mouth as we are in awe of what we've experienced. It's like when you taste something delicious for the first time and you want to share it with someone immediately. You know what I mean? When you take a bite and you make uh, audible noises that I will not replicate or try to impersonate, okay, to save us all from that. But you make those, and you're like, hey, and you just shove it in someone's face, right? So good. You got to try this. And that's what, that's what it's like. It's to praise God for what he's done, for what you've experienced from him. What has he done for you? What have you experienced? He's chosen us in love. He's predestined us as sons. He has joyfully redeemed us and generously forgiven us. So again, praise God for what he's done. But we're not done. Paul's not done here. There's also an inheritance involved. We have received an inheritance. Now, in the original language, that's one compound word, hard to translate. If you have a different translation other than the CSV, you probably have it translated different than what we have said. But something too difficult to make exactly what is happening. Is it this or is it this? But what's clear is that something in the future is going to happen. Now, it could mean two things. It could mean, literally, we have an inheritance. Or it could mean we were made an inheritance. We were made. Now, here's the reality. Both are true. <laughs> so, so we don't really even have to fight, is it this or this? Because both are true. But I want you to think about this. We have received an inheritance. Now, that's true. Why? We see that also in First Peter. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Or we were made an inheritance. We are God's possession. Uh, and if you want to begin to understand, like, how could this be? How could it be translated? Where is this coming from? We, you must know that the New Testament comes from the Old. So if you've got conf uh, some questions about the New, maybe go check out the Old. And what does the Old Testament say about God's people? Deuteronomy 4.20 says, when you look to the heavens, see the sun, moon, and stars, all the stars in the sky. Do not be led astray to bow and worship to them and serve them. The Lord your God has provided them, the sun, the moon, stars, provided them for all people every under heaven, but the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. 929 Deuteronomy, but they are your people, Moses says, your inheritance, God, whom you brought out by your great power and outstretched arm. After this song, or maybe in the song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 89, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the people of Israel. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his own inheritance. And we're not done. You see that in Deuteronomy. But then the psalmist gets involved. Psalm 33, 12. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen to be his own possession. In Psalm 135, 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his treasured possession. So I lean with John Stodd and others who see Paul's emphasis in this book on Jews and Gentiles, 
are God's people together. And so what he's alluding to here is that we, Jews who hated Gentiles and Gentiles who hated Jews, are now together God's possession. We are his people. And the psalmist tells us, if that's the case, happy. Just happy is the, right? And is, is you. You are his treasured possession. So you, happy. Now I'm (laughs) telling you to be happy. I'm not telling you to fake it. Telling you to rejoice. Why? Because you're God's treasured possession. Be happy, family. Praise the Father for what He's done for you and be happy. Rejoice. A grumpy Christian is like a sexless marriage. It can happen, but why? Why why do you want it to happen, right? Why? You can choose that, but do you want to? You don't have to. A grumpy Christian is like a 23-year-old Walmart greeter. Like, it's possible, but it seems odd, right? Like, I, th- I want the warmth of age, not the judgment of youth, right? Because when I walk into Walmart, I walk into Walmart like all of you guys, with Crocs and like a jersey from the 80s, right? And an old person saying hi, not judging, is really great. That's what I'm saying. A grumpy Christian is, it's possible, but it's weird. It's odd. We should all feel like, I don't think it should be like this. Something seems off. Now, do you have to be fake? No. Do do you have to be happy clappy? No. Do you have to put on a smile when you're grieving and just grin and bear and act like everything's okay when everything's not okay? Clearly, no. But what God is saying is that beyond our circumstances, beyond what has happened to us, beyond the problems in our relationship, our past and our future is secure, so we're happy. We are adopted, so we're happy. We're loved, so we're happy. We're chosen, so we're happy. We're redeemed, so we're happy. We're sealed with the Spirit. And is the Spirit the Spirit of dull, boringness? No. The Spirit is the God of rejoicing who sings over you in creation and new creation when He took your dead heart and made you alive. And so, be happy. Right? Like, let's rejoice. We should be, and I'm not trying to guilt you, I'm just saying we should be the most joyful people on planet Earth because we are His. Okay? I'm going to keep trying. I'm telling you, I'll give the rest of my life to try to convince you that this is good and maybe the joy will happen sometime. (laughs) But what I'm trying to say is this, and maybe I'll just keep going. I'm not telling you to fake it. I'm telling you to meditate on what God has done for you in Christ and see, just see if your frown doesn't get worse. See your frown go from maybe so sad to maybe not so sad, right? One, meditate on what Christ has done for you. God's salvation attacks frowns. It attacks discontent and restless hearts. It attacks 
apathy, attacks not with berating you and beating you down, but he attacks with an arsenal of mercy and grace, wooing you to himself, pouring his love into every crevice of your heart. You are loved. You are chosen. You are adopted, redeemed, and forgiven. You are God's treasured possession. You are secure. Secure in his arms. Secure in his life. Secure with the Spirit in you and with you. And then he adds again God's amazing plan. I I don't know if, if you've missed it. Because he won't let you miss it. Every time he has said something, this is a reason to praise God, you've been a, a chosen. Or this is a reason you should praise God, you've been redeemed. He says, again, according to God's will. According to God's will. According to God's will. We were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. God has a carefully designed plan that he is revealing and fulfilling. And if you recall, this is all according to his good pleasure. So back to our daddy issues, right? And maybe maybe my dad did stuff for me, but with the heart that he did it, with the motivation that he did it. Yeah, he worked hard for me, but he always told me how hard he worked for me, and he's very begrudging about giving me stuff. You have all these things, and then I'm telling you, no, 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 uh, that, that is not the Father. Stop projecting onto him and see. No, he has done this for you joyfully and willingly because he settled his love on you. He's come after you. Not begrudging, not like, ugh. Now, according to his good pleasure, he's gifted you the Spirit. His plan is a labor of love. It delights God to settle his love on you. There's nothing cold and mechanical here. It's a rescue plan. It's a marriage proposal. It's adoption. It's relational. It's intimately personal is what it is. It covers all of our analogies fills all of them, is the the point, the end of all of them. To say that God has sovereignly chosen you out of his love to redeem and to take you as his prized possession. Now, he uses three similar words here to stress God's sovereignty, and and it's got to be for a point, and I have to think about the point of the audience and what's happening with the audience. Well, these are Gentile believers in Ephesus who most likely have a wild backstory. Anybody got a wild backstory for Jesus? Okay. Hey, yeah, <laughs> very straight. Yes, I like that. That's what I want. Direct yes or no answers from now on. I love it. Uh, but he, he had, they just have this wild backstory. The church gets planted after Paul's there for two years speaking the gospel. A riot starts. Why? Because Artemis is threatened their God. They've got a lot of witchcraft, dark magic in their past. Most of these believers probably were uh, participants in the Artemis cult, which means they probably practiced the mystery rites to get into the cult. Not only this one, but there's pantheon of gods, so it's normal to have 
to worship more than Artemis. It was normal to worship three to five to 50 gods that were all present in Ephesus. And these Gentile, these Gentile Christians knew about paganism, knew their whole life where everything with, with the god or the deities is deals and bargains and manipulation. And some of them have brand, been branded with a god, with an image of their god. Say, hey, I belong to this god. It's a part of the, the rituals. And so can you imagine being a Christian and working through that stuff? Living in Ephesus and be like, okay, so what does it look like now to follow this God-man, the Messiah from Nazareth, follow him in Ephesus, and, and, and work out all of those weird things from my past of religion and worship? You can't imagine, I think, because we do have that past stuff, right? It's a little bit different, but we do. We all have things that we're working through from our past, things that are habits or practices or past suffering or events, worldviews and thoughts and desires that we need to work through as a disciple of Jesus. But to those who are doubting God's sovereignty over all the other gods, Paul stresses that God, Yahweh, the Father of Jesus, is in control. And those former gods no longer lay claim to their lives, no longer hold them, no longer possess them, no longer these Gentile believers, (laughs) slaves to Artemis. Artemis doesn't own you. Witchcraft isn't your master. Zeus may have a mark in your skin, but he has no claim on your soul. Jesus owns you. You belong to Jesus. This is what he's telling them. That's what they need to be assured of, to be scared that, wait, may Artemis come back and, and, and fight with, with Jesus in the heavens and I not know about it and win, and, and Jesus is a failing God, but I gave my life to, to him? What is it? No, no. Don't worry about any of that because there's no God comparable to Jesus. There's no one that was going to battle him and give him a test. There's no one that's going to make him sweat at war. There is Jesus and Jesus alone. And if you're like, well, that sounds too far removed from me. I don't, I don't worry about Zeus. Friends, the Spirit is assuring you this morning that sin is not your master. The evil one does not possess you. Death is no longer terrorizing You don't have to be fearful of it, scared of it. Your former idols and gods do not own you. Jesus does. Jesus owns you. You belong to him, and that should allow you to excel with assurance. Fill you with assurance. And if you want to know why, look at verse 13. In Jesus, you were also sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. You do truly have a father and a future. 
Not only have you been chosen and adopted by the Father, he's given you a taste of heaven in the gift of the Spirit's presence. Sealed by the Spirit. You've been sealed by the Spirit. If you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus, and believed it, the good news, the truth, is news to be received, not advice to follow. It is the best news that makes the best impact. It turns your world upside down where now you're enjoying the vast ocean of God's grace. Sealed. But once again, we see what leads me to praise even more is is that there's not a fight or a problem between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Do you see that? God chooses, God calls, God adopts, God redeems, and people receive salvation when they hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. To talk about God's sovereignty is to not negate man's responsibility. And to to talk about man's responsibility before God is not to in any way say that God is less sovereign than he is. The Bible just says it's both. Deal with it. This is life. This is life. God is in control. He rules everything, and he loves you. Deal with it. That's what this is. And not only a father and a future, and not only forgiveness, but a family. You see that in verses 11 and 12? He he, he moves from speaking of we. We, in verses 11 and 12, are the Jewish believers, him and the other Jewish believers. In verse 13, he's talking about you also have received an heart. You, you, speaking of the Gentile believers. But in verse 14, what does he say? Our inheritance. Jews and Gentiles brought together into the family that we have the same future together. And so he's just driving up front that we have a new identity and we have a new family in Christ. Heaven will not be us as little round bottom babies with little wings flicking a harp. Heaven will be us together, a united, diverse group of people praising the King of glory forever. So what's really good news here is that there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There's not Jewish believers and those Gentile believers, which also begins to open up, oh, it's not, there's not these black and white and Hispanic and Asian, and we just go through all these things that are separating us. No, in Christ, we are united together, a people from every tongue, nation, and tribe to praise his name now and forever. All believers are God's possession redeemed for his glory. So you can be assured of your new status by the Spirit's presence in your life. You're sealed by the Spirit of God. Now, seals were a normal practice in the ancient world. It was a main way of showing possession, or this is yours, this is mine, uh, showing ownership. During these times, a person's significant possessions were all marked. So it could be a signet ring, You know, you've seen the candle melted, put on a letter, a ring pushed on it, that kind of image. That's what we're saying about all of your possessions. 
So it'd be a ring, it could be a little brick that had the image that you would, you would maybe put some color, some dye on and put on and say, hey, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. Even slaves and livestock were marked by the owner. So owners were guarding their property, so it's very clear for them to hear ceiling and know what it is. It's like writing okay on 30 different baseballs because you go to practice and you named your kid and you gave him those initials, so his initials are okay, and you want to make sure that you keep the balls. You don't realize it afterwards until you write it with Sharpie okay, and you're like, he's such a jock, and I know, named him after John Owen. I should have named him John Owen Keeney, and his initials would fit, and it all work out. But I didn't. It's okay. But that's how you can keep up with you can keep up with all your property, right? Because I don't know if you've been to baseball practice recently, but there's some, there's some thieves out there. <laughs> some kids that uh, got some sticky fingers. And they say, all right, these are ours. And we walk away. Walked in with 30 baseballs, and we walked out with 30 baseballs. These are ours. In some cases, people during this time even declared themselves to be possessed by a deity owned, belonged to a deity, so they would brand themselves. I remember Shimon Williams, who played for UNC back when I was a kid, one of the best, I think, basketball teams in, in all of college basketball, because I was him and Antoine Jameson and Vince Carter and Ed Coda, wonderful team. But I remember with Sean Williams, uh, it was my first guy that I saw that had a brand from his fraternity. And I was a little kid, and I remember, like, you know, take the jersey, I've got no sleeves. Or you put the jersey on, got no sleeves. There's just this big horseshoe brand on his shoulder. And I asked my dad, like, what's that? And he goes, it's a horseshoe. And I'm like, okay, I'm nine, but, I, I, yeah, I'm, I get that it's a horseshoe. Like, shouldn't it be on a shoe? I don't know. That's, that's, my, that's what I'm missing. I don't understand. And so, oh, that's a part of his fraternity. So the fraternity would brand each other say, hey, this is my family forever. God has marked us as his possession, not with a branding iron, but with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mark of your belonging to him. The Father is saying, these people are mine. They belong to me. No one can pluck them from my hand. The evil one cannot steal them from me. The Holy Spirit is kind of like a birthmark. Like when you were converted, when you were regenerated, he, he was gifted you. You're sealed with him, and he's that mark to say, hey, this is a child of God. A mark that's visible in the heavenly realms, marking out us as those who belong to him, completely secure from all the fearful principalities and powers that we can't see. So if you take these two statements together, inheritance and sealed, this, this is what's happening Grace, it's the, the last slide. You are God's inheritance, sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance. Do you see that? God forever. You see what's happening? In sealing you with the Spirit, what, what's happening here is that he's sealing you as his people. That we are his inheritance. And that he is our inheritance. What your portion is him. We can celebrate these reasons and we can celebrate and see what God has done for us in Christ. But the Holy Spirit is the first installment 
the foretaste of what's going to happen and what are you going to be gifted God himself, the joy of heaven is not a, a gold roads or a mansion. Like as a poor kid in a trailer, I love that idea. But, but the, the joy of heaven is not the material things. The joy of heaven is God himself. He is our inheritance. What we're looking for is not to just be comfortable in a nice home in the future. What we're looking for is to see him and to praise him in unadulterated glory with our eyes fully being able to comprehend and to take in the majesty of his glory forever. That's where we're going. The beauty of salvation, the glory of being adopted, redeemed, is the reality between you and God that I am yours, and you are mine. That's the joy. You are our prize, and we are your people. God has delivered us from sin and orphanhood and destruction, and he's delivered us to adoption and redemption, and he will deliver us to new heavens and new earth where we'll enjoy him forever without Sin and brokenness and mourning. This is the good news. The Holy Spirit being the down payment. Now that down payment is a deposit guaranteeing. Uh, people have talked about it like a wedding ring. Of like I'm going to give you this wedding ring to promise that I'm going to marry you. That's not that great. It's more like putting down a down payment for a car or a house. Uh, it's putting down payment on it to, like, to secure it legally. Like I have a claim on it. Uh, it's like earnest money. That help ratifying a contract? Uh, it's the first installment of a purchase. Okay, so all to say that, all to say is God so values his people that he's put down a deposit and will complete the transaction in the future. That the spirit in you and with you is a guarantee of the full experience of salvation. The inheritance that we've yet received. So he's not just telling us about something in the future. God is bringing the future into the present so that we may taste what the future is like. You have a sense of heaven now on earth. Why? Because this, the heaven has come to you in the Spirit's presence. Heaven is like this, unadulterated view and joy of God. And what do you get now? A piece of God, that first installment. John Chrysostom said, For did he not purpose to give the whole, he would have never chosen to give the earnest and to waste it without object or result. So the Holy Spirit in believers is a foretaste of glory, the first installment of their eternal inheritance in Christ. The Holy Spirit is a first taste of enjoying God in heaven because he is God with and within us. It's like this. It's like the, it's like the first... This is all my analogies break down because I'm trying to convey God. But, but the Holy Spirit is like the first delectable course on a infinite course meal because that's what it's going to be. The first taste, begin to enjoy the ravishing feast to come. And in this, this helps us to avoid two common errors. One is thinking that our joy in the presence of God is only for the future. Like, I'll be happy then. He yelled at me to be happy, but I'll just be happy when I see Jesus face to face. <laughs> no, 
the deposit you have right now, a taste of what is to come right now. The Holy Spirit's ministry in us now is a mouth-watering foretaste of the feast we shall enjoy in the presence of God. So we can't think that this is all that there is or that there's only joy in the future. We avoid both both those errors by saying, the Holy Spirit is here now with me, a foretaste of heaven, and this is not all there is. There will be a day when I will feast fully on the glory of God. Richard Koken says, the wonderful assurance of salvation for anyone who believes the gospel, that Jesus is Christ, our Lord, who came as our king, died for our sins, rose to rule, and will return to judge, is this. I just want you to hear this word. The irreversible election of the Father. The irreversible redemption of the Son and the irreversible indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our glorious future could not be more secure. And this is all, back to verse 14, all to the praise of his glory. There's nothing left to do here but to join with Paul in worship and declare God's glory to the nations. That the Father's chosen us, and the Son has redeemed us, and the Spirit has sealed us. So recounting all this truth is to stir up our hearts to serve him with worship for our whole lives. And to open our mouths in praise and adoration. Even when we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Even when we're going through difficult times. Even when we're being persecuted for our faith. We can return to this and know that we are his and he is ours when we're riding on the peaks of joy and success or we're in the valley of failure and brokenness we can always sing just like american slaves and jewish christians and keep going throughout church history that people in some of the worst places can sing, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Even if this is my lot in life, even this is my experience now, I can, I can, I can praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, no matter what's happening with me. Not, no matter what's happening in your marriage, no matter the conflict with your kids, in all of it, you can praise him because none of it nullifies what Christ has done for you. Joel Beakey writes, the Holy Spirit is the source of all vital Christian hope, and Christians grow or diminish in hope according to relationship with the indwelling Lord. They must not grieve the Spirit or they may temporarily forfeit their sense of his sealing and the hope it confers. Now, you can't lose the Spirit, but you can grieve the Spirit. And so when you think about Ephesians 1, what I want to get into, like, the rubber meeting the road in, like, real life is that you have to think about the whole letter. The first three chapters of this is who God is, and this is who you are. This is who God is. This is who we are. And then chapters 4 through 6 is, this is how we are to live because this is who God is and this is who you are. And what does he say in chapter 4, verse 30? Do not let any filthy speech come from your 
mouth. <clears throat> no foul language, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. In verse 30, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. So if he sealed us and he's our guarantee and he's with us, how does this affect my day-to-day? It means my day-to-day is filled with praising God for what he's done in Christ, and it's filled with uh, 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 caring for and loving and speaking with grace and building others up around me. That's my language. Tearing other people down doesn't build you up. Clint Arnold said, evil speech, indeed all forms of unholy behavior, deeply hurts the spirit whom God has given to his people to indwell them, empower them to live a holy life. When you know that the Holy Spirit is a person, you can begin to even understand he can be grieved by our sin, by our foolish words, by our crass, derogatory sarcasm. It's foolish to narrow down foul talk to only the three or four uh, four-letter words in the English language that our culture said are bad. That can't be only what foul talk means. Foul talk talks a lot, tearing people down, gossip, slander, not being kind and patient, God has marked us as belonging him to the spirit, and that is to motivate us, to fuel us, to live in step with the spirit, to live as God's prized possession. The the goal is not even to tear people down. The goal is to build them up. And what happens, paradoxically, is that in building other people up with your words, the spirit actually builds you up, growing you more and more Christ-like more and more loving and gracious, secure and fun, vibrant and warm, courageous and buoyant with worship. Why do I use all those? Because, again, I'm trying to clarify who Jesus is, what he's not. He's loving and gracious, secure and fun, vibrant and warm, courageous and buoyant with worship. Jesus lived a life of worship. And building others up with your words because you're motivated by the Spirit's presence in your life. It's like when you're teaching your kids something and you learn as well. So it's like when you build other people up, you are built up in grace as well. This warning of grieving the Spirit is a warning to eliminate our sinful actions. If you go around the context of that verse, You can see multiple things happening, but you see filthy speech, uncontrolled anger, lying, stealing, any other vice. A wonderful motivation for you to put this sin to death is that the spirit, the foretaste of heaven is with you and has you. 
So let's not grieve him. And I said that that big idea is this, is that what God has done for us in Christ changes clearly what we do with our mouth. Because it changes what happens in our hearts. And Jesus clearly told us that what comes out of the mouth flows from our hearts. And what the Spirit is doing this morning by talking about <laughs> the Spirit is showing and stirring up in you worship that would burst through your throat all the way out of your mouth to praise to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's sealed you with the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance. And it changes how we speak to others. Being blessed with every spiritual blessing turns a heart ours being cold and mechanical and aloof and apathetic and weak and uncaring to actually seeing what God has done for us in Christ and us bursting forth with joy and praise and encouragement to others to build them up. Because we are truly his inheritance. I'm going to say this one more time. I'm not. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help in this. We ask for your mercy to give us what we don't deserve and not give us what we do deserve. Holy Spirit, as being the, the down payment, the foretaste of heaven, I, I pray, I ask you that this morning as we sing to you and praise you, that this would be another glimpse of our forever future, a glimpse of being with you and you showing us your glory without being <laughs> hid in a cleft of rock, but seeing you and celebrating your goodness to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.